Hey, well, good morning, church. It's so good to be here with you all this morning. Uh, I'm just so thankful for the invitation that Corey extended to me. Uh, Corey and I have known each other for several years. Uh, We actually went to undergrad together for a little bit, but I'm not sure we knew it at the moment. Uh, And then later we worked together in Huntsville, Alabama, and then lived in the same city in Atlanta, Georgia, and worshiped at the same church together. And so Corey and I have known each other for quite a while. But you and I haven't known each other except for a few seconds, and so I wanted to introduce myself and put a picture of my family up on the screens behind me here so that you could get to know them a little better as well. So you've got on the screen uh, me, believe it or not, right up there in the top, uh, your left corner, my daughter Tinley next to me, uh, my daughter Tessa below me, and then my wife uh, Tori beside me who does not know that I'm showing you this picture right now. <laughs> we, uh, we love this picture. Uh, my wife found this mullet wig uh, for $1.50 the day after Halloween a couple of years ago. And so she brought it home, and immediately my girls tried it on, and we just burst out in laughter looking at them. And then uh, my wife, who's not really spontaneous, put it on a couple of days later and walked into our dining room to sit down for dinner wearing the wig, and so our girls just fell out, uh, fell out in the floor laughing at uh, my wife's spontaneity, and so then I had to put it on, and so I waited a couple more days and surprised everybody by walking into the dining room wearing the same wig, and it just became this running little gag that we did as a family. We would wait till dinner time, we'd all be s- seated at the table, and then one of us would walk in wearing this wig. In fact, it, it just became its own story so that when we had guests coming over, One of our girls would sneak off into their room and grab this wig and run back into the dining room wearing it, and then they would pass it to the guest of the family that time, and they had to wear it too. So we we just love gathering at the table and rehearsing the story over and over and over again. This is what we do, especially this time of year, is we pull up to the table together and we rehearse stories, and we pull up to the table together and we remember the things that make us laugh and bring us joy, and remind us of who we are. Now, before we go, I want to put up a different picture of our family, so that if you ever run into my wife, and she asks you if you've ever seen a picture, you can say, yeah, I saw the one of you guys sitting outside, dressed really nicely, and and all that stuff. So, hey, I, I want to make a quick comparison this morning, and I think if you're not a Jesus follower and you just found yourself here this morning with a guest, someone promised you lunch and you just found your way in here, uh, that you might think this is kind of funny. But I think if you're a lifelong Jesus follower or if you've been at this game for a while, then you might be a little bothered by what I'm about to say. And that is that I think Jesus and mullets have a little bit in common with each other. Think about that. We've always said that a person who wears a mullet is all business in the front, and I'll party in the back, right? And I think one of the things that frustrates us about a mullet is that, you know, it's just not committed. It's trying to have it both ways. It's trying to have its party and its business all at once. And I'm going to tell you that the thing that really frustrates people about Jesus, at least in the scriptures, is that he wants it both ways too. To the people who want him to be all business, he just isn't. And the people who want him to be all party, he just isn't. He likes to have it both ways. And so in Luke 15, which is where we're going to be this morning, there is this mullet moment in Jesus' life. He is 
at someone's house, we think, and uh, people are beginning to gather around him, and there are some who are on the inside of this house, and several who are on the outside of this house, and there is tension that begins to build between these two groups. This is how Luke says it in chapter 15, verse 1. He says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear what Jesus had to say. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and gasp." Eats with them. You see, in this scene that Luke is calling our attention to, on the one side we have what can only be thought of as notorious sinners. We know that at least some of them are tax collectors. They are people who have devoted their profession to working for the enemy, and they are part of the problem. They're walking around the streets of Jerusalem and Judea, and they are continuing the oppressive regime of the Roman Empire by going house to house, collecting not just their rightful taxes, but many times we understand they're collecting even more. And so these tax collectors are literally a hated group of people among the Jewish folks. But they are especially hated by another group of people known as the Pharisees. So if on one side of the room you've got these tax collectors and these unknown other categorical sinners in the room, on the other side, standing outside the doorway, are these Pharisees and these teachers of the laws. And one way to kind of understand that and to read that is that they are lifelong Religious people who have given themselves entirely over to studying and doing God's will. Pharisees, teachers of the law, people who are all about the business of God. Inside the house, tax collectors and sinners, people who are decidedly not about the business of God. On the inside is a party. On the outside is business. And there Jesus is standing between the two groups. And on the one side of sinners and on the other side of the lifelong religious people, the saints, in the middle there sits a table. And Jesus invites both sides to come and to gather. And so this complaining, this muttering that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are doing it prompts Jesus to tell a series of three stories. And so if you've been in church for a while or ever been to a VBS or something like that, you probably know this chapter relatively well. It it begins with Jesus talking about uh, a a shepherd who has a lost sheep. He's got a hundred sheep and one of them wanders off and gets lost. And so the shepherd... Uh, seemingly in a responsible way, leaves the 99 and goes to find the other that is lost. He finds it, he hoists that sheep up on his shoulders and he brings it back and says there's much rejoicing. He calls in the community and they celebrate together because that which was lost was found. The second story Jesus tells is of a woman who has 10 coins and We assume that these 10 coins are are maybe her livelihood, her whole life savings, and she loses one. And so it says that she turns the house upside down in search of this lost coin. And when she finds it, she grabs it and she calls her neighbors to come together and to celebrate and to rejoice because that which was lost was 
found. And then he tells a third story. And you have to understand that these first two stories, they're, they're setting up this expected rhythm. There is something that is lost. There is something that is searched for. And then there's something that is found. There's something that's lost. There's something that's searched for. And then there is something that is found. And so when we get to the third story, we think we know how this is all going to unfold. There's going to be something that's lost. There's going to be something that's searched for. And then there's going to be something that's found. Except that's not quite how it happens. The story begins with a son demanding his share of the inheritance prematurely. He goes to his father and asks for his share. And I think it's verse 14 that says that he goes off and he wastes this. He squanders it. He squanders his inheritance. This son is clearly lost. He's wasted his inheritance. He's given up all that the Father has given him in exchange for empty living. But the story doesn't unpack the same way that we expect it to. The Father, not once, leaves his household in search of the Son. He doesn't pack up his bags and load up an entourage and get the camels and the donkeys all loosened up and limber and ready to go and go off into this distant country in search of the younger son. He just sits and he waits. And it says that while the father was looking, the son was still a far way off and and the father sees the son. And yes, while the son is coming home, after the son has come to his senses, the father then rushes off to greet the son and to wrap his arms around him and to put the rightful robe and the ring upon him, to put new sandals on his feet, to throw a party even, and to rejoice because that which son which wandered off has now returned. But there was not something lost something searched for, and then something found. Until we understand what Jesus is doing here in this story. It's not just a story about the first son. It's not just a story about a younger son who demands his inheritance prematurely and then runs off and squanders it in wild living and then is left to come to his senses later and returns home and is welcomed home and a party is thrown. It's not just a story about that one. I think we love that story because we love these kinds of scenes where someone has lost their mind and comes to their senses and then returns to that which is right. We love these stories. We love to hear people come and share their testimonies or to give witness to the the power of God in their life who has rescued a wrench like them and who has brought them back safely home. We love to celebrate the power and the grace of God and stories just like this younger son. But there is still another son. There is the older, the faithful, the dedicated son who, like the Pharisees, is left outside looking in on the party that is happening in the house in front of him. It says in verse 25, after the celebration began, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and he asked him, What's going on? 
Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother, it says in verse 28, that he became angry and he refused to go in. Right? The, the younger son comes home, is welcomed, he takes a seat at the table. The younger son, like the tax collectors and these sinners, finds himself gathered around the table in his father's presence. The, the younger son, like the tax collectors and the sinners, knows what it's like to have gone far off course and to find oneself back home in the good graces of the loving father. He knows what it's like to be gathered around the table and to be welcomed by Jesus. But these Pharisees and these teachers of the law, they'll, they'll have nothing of it. They want nothing to do with this celebration. They want nothing to do with a father that will so quickly welcome back what was thought to be the dead son. They want nothing to do with these people who have given all of their inheritance away and lived emptily, who have now found themselves back in the empowering grace of the Father. These Pharisees, these teachers of the law, will stand outside the door and they will protest and they will stomp their feet and they will mutter and they will be indignant that a father could so soon welcome in a son like this. You see, in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, those tax collectors and sinners have found themselves at the table, but it's the lifelong religious people who are, who are outside. See, in this story of not just the younger son, but the older son, there is something that's lost, though I don't think he knows it. And there is someone who goes and searches for him, but I don't think he really recognizes it. And there is someone who is offered the invitation to be welcomed back into the household and to gather at the table once more. But he refuses. And that's the older son. This is how the story goes. In verse 27, the servant says, Your brother's come, and your father's killed the fatted calf because he has your younger brother back safe and sound. And so the older brother became angry and refused to go in. But notice what happens. The father went out and pleaded with him. Right In all the stories that, that Jesus is telling here in Luke 15 of, of something being lost and something being searched for and something being found, even though the story of the first son doesn't fit that pattern, the story of the second son, of the older son, is slipping into that pattern. There is someone who is lost, though he doesn't know it. And there is someone who goes after him, who goes toward him, who reaches out to him in graciousness to welcome him back in. It says, so the father went out and pleaded with him. But the son answered his father, look, look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never, and never once disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when 
When this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, when he comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. Verse 31. My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and we had to be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. My son, he says to him, what better place to remind him What better place to remind you of what matters most than to invite you into the house and to have you come and sit at table and gather around the gracious, loving Father once more? You see, I I think there are a lot of us in this room who can identify with this story. There are, in fact, some of us in this room who can identify with the younger son, the one who has sinned so epically that he didn't just embarrass himself, but he brought shame on the family. There's some of us who knows all too well what that's like for us to have our mistakes and our failures impact those around us that we love. And so for us, we wonder, will there ever be a time in which we're loved again. And Luke 15 serves to remind us each and every time that those doubts surface, yes, 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 there is one who will forever and always love you and call you daughter and son. But in a room like this, and even though we don't know each other all that well, My guess is there are a lot of us who can identify with the older son perhaps more easily. We have, in one way or another, spent our entire lives following God. We have spent our entire lives being faithful. We have spent our entire lives dedicating and committing ourselves to doing our very best to follow God's way. And it doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. It doesn't mean that we haven't had seasons where we've messed up. But by and large, we have been spared of these kinds of mistakes that would embarrass ourselves so publicly or bring shame upon our own families. And so for us, we're not so much worried about our mistakes. We wonder in our heart of hearts what God is up to. Because in churches like this and in churches where I lead, we are so committed to the outside. We're so committed to our neighbors. We're so committed to the city around us and loving others well that sometimes those of us who have given our whole lives to serving and following God, we wonder, is there still a place at the table for us? And What I want you to hear me say this morning, church, is that when we gather around the table to remember, then we remember what matters most. When we gather around the table to remember, 
we remember what matters most. It isn't our past failures for those of us who have messed up so epically in our life. It isn't our own successes and our own faithfulness. When we gather around the table, especially the table of Jesus to remember, then at that moment we're invited to remember what matters most. And it isn't us, church. It's Jesus. And so in just a few chapters over, in Luke chapter 22, which we read this morning during our time of communion, we see Jesus call in his closest friends one final time. And he invites them to the table. And he says in verse 15, I've I've eagerly desired to eat this meal with you. Could we press pause right there for a second, church? And just consider the fact that we follow someone so perfect and so other than us at times. It's mind-blowing, and yet this person says to us each and every week, I can't wait to get around the table with you again. This is the kind of Jesus that welcomes tax collectors and sinners. And then, on the other hand, the same kind of Jesus who welcomes in the the Pharisees and the the teachers of the law, he says to each and every one of us, to the the people who, who have made so many mistakes we can't keep up with it, and to the group of us who have been so faithful for so long, it's hard for us to know how long we've been at it. He says to each and every one of us, come, gather around me. I can't wait for us to sit at table one more time. Because Jesus knows what we need to know this morning, that when we gather around the table of Jesus to remember, then we remember what matters most. Hey, church, stand with me, please. During this meal... As Jesus has his followers pulled in closely, gathered around this table, after he's expressed his great desire to share this meal with them, he says, in verse 19, he took the bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this while remembering me. Church, may you come to know that when we gather around the table each week, the table of Jesus, we remember what matters most. And may you come to know that this Jesus who invites you and is your gracious host longs to meet you there each and every week, longs to meet all of us there each and every week. And church, as we gather each week, May we say with the great psalmist, may we taste and see that the Lord is good.